So, hey, everybody, me and Floyd do one of these just about every blue moon. Uh, last one we did, I think it was with Brooke or Mont, one of the two. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping as schedules open up, we can do this a little bit more, even just hop on one day every week or two weeks and just kind of BS for a while and talk about our sport. <laughs> so, uh, along with... Everybody knows me, hopefully. I, I actually, that sounded cocky. You don't know me. I'm a nobody. Uh, we got Floyd here, uh, my buddy. We coached Iowa Central together many years ago. And uh, we've known each other for, what, 14 years now? Uh, yeah. yeah. Man, that's – I was the young coach at that point, man. That's... <laughs> and then uh, Dave Miller, who – wow, Dave, I've known you for over 10 years now at this point. Went over to Millersville USA weightlifting camps were. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be at least a dozen years ago. Oh, man. And uh, Dave is now the one of the strength conditioning coaches at University of Houston, working specifically with track and field. So I wanted to hop on. I love talking about strength and conditioning. Anybody who's seen my Facebooks and all lately, I've just been frustrated with some of the stuff <laughs> I'm seeing. I get Floyd talking to me and, like, shoot me messages after some of my posts. <laughs> and uh, a couple of people just asked my opinion. And you know those of you know me i don't like just giving my opinions about this is bad this is good but i just figured we'd have a little bit of a talk about it because i mean we're at a point in kind of coaching now where anybody has a platform and the thing that i know that's frustrated me and that i'm gonna shut up and let dave talk a little bit is <laughs> when you go on instagram and it's somebody with no knowledge or background or education, even in strength conditioning, Olympic weightlifting, sports performance, and maybe they look good in a t-shirt or <laughs> something like that. So they post these wild workouts and these wild, wild things that then your athletes and even athletes you recruit just latch onto. And I mean, you just get questions. Hey, coach, can we start doing this thing? Or coach, I, I read that, you know, T.O. and T.O. is long retired, but you know what I mean? T.O. is doing this for a workout. And things like that. So Dave, you and I talked about that a little bit. So what's, what's kind of been your experience with that lately? Oh, you mean the idea of social media walking around in your pocket that everybody has one? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So just because you have a phone and you can hop on any of the, what, half a dozen different social media platforms and put up a video of you doing stuff. Just because, and it almost reminds me of uh, the, what I'm going to call, you know, this is going to date me, right? The, the good old days of television, because we don't really have television anymore, right? And, and uh, everybody asking about, well, Olympic weightlifting, are you guys on TV? So now everybody today has a television or a recording studio, if you will, in their own pocket and can post stuff that they do in their backyard or in a weight room or on a track or jogging jogging down the road i love you know one of my favorites is listening to david goggins just jogging down the road somewhere telling everybody to be tough um it's frustrating because just because because the kids see something on social media it reminds me again like television used to be if it's on TV, it must be right. You know, and if you ever heard, heard Leo, who was running our, our training camps back in Millersville and 
and all the other camps at Gettysburg and years beyond that, uh, just because you saw it on TV, it must be the best thing. Just because the kids saw it on Twitter, that must be the way it's done. Or so-and-so I saw, uh, you mentioned T.O. I'm terrible at knowing the, the hot names in, in any sport, but because fill in the blank athlete posted something about, Hey, we're supposed to do squats this way. Coach, do you think we should do squats that way? How come we're not doing them that way? It becomes a, um, almost a standard that we then have to, at least I do in the weight room, have to uh, explain the science, explain what they saw on whatever platform on social media, and then have them understand why I've chosen the exercises and the, and the rep scheme that I have in the weight room for that particular workout. So it's, it's another challenge because almost any, I'm going to use this term loosely, knucklehead can, can publish something and uh, it can be taken as, Oh, well, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. And it's, it goes the other way too. Sometimes what, is being advertised is correct. Like um, uh, we've talked about this before, Dave and I have that I, I take out squats for my sprinters and all generally around January or February. That's just the way I've done it. It's cost benefit analysis. I know coaches who squat all the way through championships who have a lot of success. It's just the way I do it. I just think it's too much time under tension and stress on the body during competition. Uh, it was around January or December article comes out in one of the sports magazines or sports websites, uh, bills, um, use taking out squats from their workout as a reason for lack of injury in postseason. So I had athletes coming up to me, coach, did you see this? Like, you know, this is why you say, you, I said, yeah, I said, you believe it now because you've read it about a professional football team. But when I explained to you why we don't squat late, it, it held no water for you. So it's just this weird thing of why are you trusting this source? Like what, what makes that the good source to trust more than anything else? And like I said, it's, I, I, I've grown to hate the term influencer, like not just social media influencer, but now there's fitness influencers and it's somebody you look at them as they don't, they don't have any background in anything, no education in any of it, but they have millions of people following what they're doing. And this isn't just from a, youth standpoint, non-athlete standpoint. There's athletes who really buy into these different things, especially at track and field, you know, track and field Olympic weightlifting. I mean, that's been a thing for a while when people, there's a whole group of people that thought the catapult was the way to do the lifts instead of triple extension. And we've had to deal with that at the camps and things like that of, oh, I, I teach the catapult and I teach this. So how about you, Floyd? What have you run into with this? Um, well, just kind of let me kind of delve into my transition from athlete going into coach and going through, you know, my beginnings phase as a coach in education and then, you know, doing USA weightlifting or whatever. The one thing I found, you know, is that we kind of do, I think it's like a, I don't know, almost a human condition for us to think that things have to be so complex or out of this world or so different. But the more I've 
gone into my coaching career, the more I've talked to coaches, the more I've educated myself, man, the more I realized that, you know, a lot of things are extremely simple, way more simple than we realize. And, you know, it's, it's just that thing. People, they attach on to this stuff to social media because it's something they haven't seen or it just seems outrageous or it's just, you know, this person is that, you know, they're this level athlete and this workout so different from mine. So it has to be effective, you know? Yeah. And people like variety too. So they yeah. see something that's different. And, you know, one thing that's tough in competition season for me is uh, I'll do during a power day, speed day, three lifts in a workout, you know, so you can do variations of things. You can be a little bit, you know, you know, a little bit more variation with that, but people just want variety. They want to see something different sometimes. And, you know, to, to be, to be more explosive, to be faster. Sometimes it's like you said, it's pretty simple. What are we going to do? We're going to run faster. We're going to recover. There's, there's one way of getting faster, how are we going to get stronger? We're going to lift and we're going to recover, you know, and you can't go against those principles. It's not, I can't remember who I heard made, make a joke about that. Like when they talk to professional athletes, who were like really ripped about how to get in shape They're, we're expecting to hear this like weird like crazy thing like oh actually if you eat too much cupcakes it actually goes the other way and you lose weight like it's it's never something like that it's simple it's no this is what you do this is how we set it up your sprint practice then moves into your lifting and moves into your plyometric and then that things go like that but some of the it was just maybe i'm just getting to be an old man now that i turned 40 but some of the posts I've seen lately, it's just these crazy, crazy workouts. And I'm like, what are you doing? I saw, I'm not going to give it specifics, like hurt anybody's feelings, but, you know, things like, hey, do you believe in, um, do you believe in short sprints with long recovery for your sprinters? And I'm just thinking, well, yeah, that's one way to train it, one part of training and then you have your lactic threshold and then you have tempo and then you have this like there's no just one set way and that's why i put on facebook the thing of i can never remember the saying about you know the world seems full of nails to somebody with a hammer to where <laughs> hey if you know and people thought that about me after i started off with olympic lifting as my first certifications of he's the olympic lifting guy so everything he's gonna do is olympic lifting uh, one of my buddies, he teaches TRX classes and he does, he's an amazing strength coach on top of it, but because he did TRX, people thought he was a TRX guy. So everything has a, a place in training. It's, it's not one certain thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find we get into that discussion here at Houston about uh, just because me, for example, my responsibilities are track and field. Um, what would I be doing helping a professional uh, football player? Well, last I checked, the human body is the human body, whether it's football, sumo wrestling, track and field, Olympic weightlifting. It's more so what I'm going to do for the athlete might be slightly different depending on what's their goal in the weight room for their sport, right? Um, the the track the sprinter, for example, 
runs a race and then stands around for 20 minutes or longer before they run another race, right? Throwers, for example, will throw a shot, sit down on the bench for 10 minutes before they come up again for their next throw. So let's, and a, and a football player needs to be resilient enough to withstand the pounding of the game, not just that game, but the season and be able to be at peak performance at the end of it. So it's, it's all about uh, uh, would Dan John keep the goal, the goal, what are we training the athlete for? And last I checked all of us in the strength conditioning field, uh, whether you're working with volleyball or you're working with football, you should still have the same base knowledge of how to train an athlete. Just ask the question one, what, what are the requirements of that athlete in their event? And two, how is, how is what I'm doing as your strength coach helping you feel stronger, more powerful, more explosive, uh, better in, in your sport? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all training the body. Like even when I've been head strength coach some places and you know, people look at the workouts, it's not going to be vastly different. It's not like I have one sack of exercises for track and field, one sack of exercises for football. For me, it's more about what they're doing that day at practice. And that's taken a long time for me to kind of explain to like team sport coaches when I've worked with other teams is, I, I would get them come to me a lot. Hey, tomorrow's our day off. So we're going to be in the weight room with you. No, if, it, if it's their day off, it's their day off. Let them, let them rest, you know, especially something like volleyball or basketball where their entire practice is plyometric, you know, so then on their rest day, you're going to make them do some Olympic lifts and you're going to be jumping a bunch of times and stuff like that. Like, no, like it's, it's an old, you know, platitude, but hard days, hard, easy days, easy. You know, it's, Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I really try to do with the team sport coaches is, hey, give me your game schedule and your practice schedule and what you're doing each day. And you know what? If you change your practice on the fly, come let me know if we're in the weight room that day so I can adjust it. I think a lot of times <clears throat> it's just like you said, it's it's looked at as separate entities. And even I've been on staffs where I've been helping another event because a coach may be timid or think they don't really know about how to program the lifting or what to do. But like just my background as a thrower, like lifting and throwing was never looked at as two different things. It was just practice. It it was practice as a whole. And sometimes when you can get people to think of that, like, this is just practice. You know what I mean? This is my training as a whole. They, they really understand more than they realize, you know, they may, they may need help on how to specifically put things together, but they have more of an understanding of what should be done on certain days and where where they should take it easy or recover or where this is where we really kind of dig down deep and have like a, you know, a uh, day where we do a lot of stuff, you know, 
when you're, when you're saying you've worked with coaches who are timid and don't know much about lifting, are you talking about me, Floyd? Is that you taking shots? <laughs> <laughs> it was either that or I was going to bring up you saying talking about practice, just, just as an AI Sixers fan. Not but, a game. <laughs> not a meet. But no, we're not talking about the meat. But um, no, it's you're 100% right with that. Like, where I, I've said this uh, before to athletes, like, your body doesn't know the difference between sprinting, lifting, plyometrics, you know, all these different things. It just knows work is being done. And for me, that's the thing that I always have to cling on to. Despite any coach with any knowledge of what their strengths are in lifting, you know, um, track and field, it's training your nervous system. If your nervous system is flat or your nervous system is fatigued at the end of the week, you will not compete well. End of story. So that always has to be one of the primary things. All right, is, to, is today a very, very neural day? Is today a day where nervous system is really going to be taxed? Well, then we can go two more days and try to get super compensation or we can go hard, easy, hard, easy. Like there's all sorts of ways to do it, but it's something that you have to keep in mind more than anything else. And I've tried to tell athletes that, that, oh, it's my off day. I'm going to go do some accelerations. Like, all right, that's not an off day, man. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. And Dave, you coming from Olympic lifting as your primary thing, is it is it pretty similar with how you've moved into specifically track training with it? Oh, what the, the just the nervous system between, training, yeah. Well, uh, the the training that a, a weightlifter goes through is almost entirely neural related. Almost every training session, right? Almost every training session is has has a neural component and a, a, a strength component, a bodybuilding component, right? Um, it's a li it's been a little bit of an adaptation for me to adjust to that there's there's a, a day for example where coach wants to do uh, block starts that's the day we're doing the olympic lifts right um and you spoke of it earlier that uh, there's a time in the season to load them with lots of volume in the squats and deadlifts and then there's a time where we're going to do uh, single leg squats or single leg lunges so that we're not loading them uh, so heavily. Um, so that's it's sort of seasonal. That, that part is very similar to weightlifting, but the programming day to day to day within a week, that's been something for me to adjust to. Um, but again, it's, it's about communicating with the coach what's the plan for uh, training on, on Tuesday, Monday, Thursday. Okay. We're putting them all on a plane, go compete on Friday or, you know, go put them on a plane on Friday to compete on Saturday. So the, that, that adjustment um, has been helpful. It's been, it's been unique for me as far as, and, and what, one of the things I wanted to kind of go back to the keep keeping uh, the programming simple. Okay. So, uh, I'm now my third season of, uh, strength training track and field at division one. I also have what, 37 years of, of involvement with Olympic weightlifting, but one of our coaches actually are two, two of our sprint coaches, Leroy Burrell, our head coach and Carl Lewis, 
and now Carl uh, obviously has a, 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 a hell of amount of uh, credibility in what he did as an athlete. He's also a fantastic coach. We had one of our athletes, freshman, I think she was a sophomore, sort of questioning, coach, why are we doing the same workout we did last week? You're doing the same workout last week because you're a sprinter and all you do is go from the starting blocks to the finish line. So we train the starting blocks to the finish line. There's days we do blocks. There's days we do uh, 200 meters. There's days we do as he calls them breakdowns where they do a 400 to 300 to 200. Um, and throughout the season, this has been another piece for me to learn that the training is progressive from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. And, and what changes are the times. So yeah. Okay. So in the, in the beginning off season, they're doing some pliers or doing some jumping as they get into in season, that stuff disappears from their program. And what are they doing? They're sprinting. The only difference then are the fine points, meaning how much rest they're giving them between bouts, but they're always running. So it's, it will, to me, with my experience, seem like a silly question, coach, why are we, why are we always running in our workouts? Because uh, you're a sprinter. It's like, well, and it, like on a lot of them, it's always going to be the same volume. There's some workouts where we're going to go a thousand meters total of volume. So we can do five by 200. You know, there's, there's a couple of ways we can do it. You know, we can go four by one fifth or four by 250. So you're, it's like you said, it's, it's simple. Like, what are we trying to do here? Like, and going back to like what Floyd was saying is people just want to see something different. Like, I mean, if you want, I was asked uh, by one of the coaches a couple of years ago about getting some of these weird equipment trainer things. They're like, oh, how about we get this, this, and this? I said, so that's $6,000 worth of stuff that I can get some PVC pipe. I remember when me and Floyd were looking for rebar to throw rebar for discus training, you know, just based like, no, it's doing the same thing. It's just, this one has a name on it and it's got some Velcro straps around it. Like <laughs> you don't need, if you understand how the, human body works and you understand how to set up a training program, you don't need a lot of that flash. And going back to what you said a little while ago, Dave, like I don't think every coach needs to be an expert in any form of exercise science or Olympic weightlifting or any of that, but you have to have at least a, a general idea of how the human body works to be a track and field coach, because that is the sport. And like you said, Olympic weightlifting was even different. I trained Olympic lifting maybe three years actually training it day in and day out. And it was weird, man. There were some days because Leo wrote my programs for a while where in the morning I was doing my kind of strength stuff. So I would do some squats and I would do some things like that. And then in the evening is when I would be doing, you know, snatches and pulls. And I, my RDLs went through the roof. I was doing snatch grip RDLs more than I've ever cleaned before. Uh, so it's, it <laughs> works, but it's the type of thing. And then you slowly kind of get into whatever competition you're going into. So I remember when I first talked to you, when you got to Houston, you said, it's not that the workouts are easier. It's just way less stuff compared to what you would do for an Olympic lifter. We just, we just don't, it's, it's getting the biggest bang for your buck, the, especially in season 
I've got, I've got sprinters twice a week for 45 minutes. That's it. And Floyd, I mean, uh, Dave, you've never met Floyd before, but when I met him, he, he was the most, still one of the most athletic humans I've ever met. Like when I'm going over lifting <laughs> and he and I trained together because he was right out of college and it was his first coaching job. And I was still trying to hit 50 meters in discus and I still never done it in a meet. So I'm ticked <laughs> off about that. But in training, I was peppering out there 50 meters because I had Floyd there pushing me. We would we would do speed work. We would do that. Dave, I sent you the video of Floyd. If anybody wants to look it up, big man slam Duncan is the thing. I think <laughs> I think I might have even been the one to record that. I don't remember, but you know, it's and that's where it gets to be interesting. Of are the people who are really really good at the Olympic lifts and throwing the weight up? Is it just they were built that way and now we're just moving on? into fine tuning it or how much the training is actually going to increase those. So for somebody like Floyd, him doing 195 pound snatch, just standing or throwing it up there. That's just your explosiveness where you could have gone. I mean, you have talked about this before Floyd, cause you had that bad elbow injury a little bit after I left Iowa central, like how good of an Olympic lifter I think you could have really been if you had trained it. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's one thing I realized kind of just going through coaching education and really learning how to do to develop kids a little better in the weight room and learning some technical things. But it is interesting. You know, that, that's kind of one thing I'm, I'm always going through, just going through the workouts. Um, you know, you got the things you do, but I look at everything as like a um, – a diagnostic tool too, not only a trainer stimulus, but a diagnostic tool. Because you know, you got kids who can really handle a lot of weight in the weight room, and you know they they may need the. You talking about squats? I got kids. You know, it's a little more individualized. Just only having to focus on the throwers, but you know, I've taken out squats as a whole across the group when I got 25 kids and I'm just like, we're going to get rid of that. I've had smaller groups where I've had five to six kids and I can really tune into everything, really spend a lot of time. And I had one kid squatting heavy until three weeks out from the conference, outdoor conference meet. And I got a kid who we let him go in January and he's just way more ballistic on things. So like, just using all your training tools is just kind of a way to see what they can handle and, and, and what affects them the best. And, you know, I think that's the, the, the nice thing about um, working in the weight room with kids that throw things for the event, because it's like, you always getting constant feedback on how things work absent, like technical struggles and flaws, like, you get an instant feedback constantly on the effectiveness of what you're doing. You and, know? and plus throwers want to lift too. You know, That's true. there's very That's few true. throwers that, oh no, I don't feel like lifting. That's then all true. of a sudden you go to some freshman distance runners <laughs> and it's coach, I'm a distance <laughs> runner, I do I have to lift. Or the best coach, I'm a distance runner, I really shouldn't have to do the Olympic lifts. Like, no, my, my own, you know, distance runners do Olympic lifts. You know, they, they do it for different reasons sometimes and we, we do it for different stuff, but 
you still need some good postural stability and some core stability and some eccentric from catching the bar, you know, it, that stuff's still beneficial. So I think we're finally getting away from that. I'm seeing more and more distance programs actually lift. Uh, you know, sometimes it's only two days a week, but at, at least it's something. How's it been with uh, you working with the distance runners, Steve? My distance runners, my pole vaulters are the most technical uh, Olympic weightlifters we have on the team. And there was a podcast I was listening to recently on um, a, 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 the American record holder in the half marathon, Ryan Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, listening to him talk about he wished he had done some strength training in his career. Uh, now, here was a guy who uh, I believe still holds the, the American record for the half marathon. Um, and I think he described his height at like 5'11", and his body weight uh, during competition years at 137 pounds, to now being 190 pounds at 5'11", uh, and doing a 500-pound deadlift and a sub-five-minute mile. Like, it, like, put the bar down and go. Right. Clock starts. Um, uh, I feel my feeling is, and, and this is the way it, my, the biggest group, or that I would say the biggest pushback that I get are some of our sprinters. Really? They are still feeling like, matter of fact, they've been an 800 meter young man, freshman, who literally, uh, we got into this discussion. What does the weight room have anything to do with my running fast? Okay, I'll explain it to you. It, it, and for me, this is where when I started here um, and my discussions with Coach Burrell about what I can do as an Olympic weightlifting specialist to help track and field athletes perform at a higher level, it is all about how much force can you put into the ground. Not even just force into the ground, but for somebody like an 800 runner. There's a lot of 800 runners who come out of high school who mostly of what they've done is mileage. They haven't really even done much speed work. So once you're adding that speed work, if they don't get strong enough and stable enough and have a strong enough structure, they're going to be injured throughout the first couple of years. And what happens when an athlete gets injured the first couple of years? Are they going to say, I need to get stronger, get a better structure? No, they're going to say, my coach is going to be injured. <laughs> so it's, it's pivotal. And I've told this to the distance runners too, especially 5K, 10K runners, like, if you're, you don't have a strong structure and you have imbalances and you have these other things and you're going to try to do a 60 mile week and then try to go into a race and do an 8K on the weekend through a hilly course <laughs> or a muddy course or a course with a lot of downhills, you're going to fall apart, buddy. Like, I'm, I don't know what to tell you. And especially now that so much of the research has come out that shin splint issues and shin issues are caused by partially a lack of posterior chain strength. I mean, it's, it's something that a lot of people have just been throwing everything on weak posterior chain, but this is one that's actually popped out that, yeah, they, you have a stronger posterior chain for a variety of reasons. They can actually alleviate some issues on your shins. So yeah, I agree. I agree with you hundred percent. I, I think uh, my job in the weight room is to do two things. One, make them stronger, more powerful. And two, make them more resilient for 
not just the training, but the season. And, and part of that resiliency uh, in the weight room, in that controlled environment, I get a chance to see where are some imbalances. We have a, a, a 100, 200 meter uh, sprint sprinter, this young lady who has strained hamstring earlier in the, I would say it, was, it either happened at, at the end of the indoor season or the beginning of the outdoor season. And now she's back. She's healed. Everything's good. She's got the clearance to get back to competing again. Had her in the weight room doing single leg uh, hamstring curls. And the injured leg is managing the movement and the weight like a champ. The other leg can't curl a weight to save her life. Light bulb goes on over my head thinking, I wonder if the hamstring that got injured got injured because the other one wasn't functioning very well and had to overwork so i get a chance to look at discrepancies and imbalances but the to go back to the the ground force piece and and i i'm sorry i don't remember the reference but it was one of those uh videos i had seen on uh the, one of those websites with track and field it was a, a strength coach for distance runners his question was this, what is the difference between, and he literally said, me, an average runner, my grandmother, he literally did a, a study with him, 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 his grandmother, and an elite level sprinter. Put onto a treadmill, running as fast as the individual, his grandmother, himself, and the sprinter, at their fastest for each individual, he analyzed their movement mechanics, each one to be perfect for them. So what's the difference? The difference was how much force each of them put into the treadmill, how much ground force down the ground, which then uh, get, puts me back to what I hear Carl and Coach Burrell talk about, push, put your feet down, put your feet down. And the harder they put their feet down, the faster they move. Yeah, and that's – I got that question even though I'm out of shape now when I'm doing running workouts. And people say, oh, you have a good heel recovery or you still have a pretty big stride. Like, I'm not going to lose my stride. Like, I'm still strong. Like, I can still apply force to the ground. Where when I'm demonstrating block starts, I still can get decent extensions. And there will be a dozen people on the Facebook making fun of me for seeing me do extension on this. But it's still at least at the right angle. I can still get full extension out of it. But – it's, it's the other factors. So I, I was taught this years ago. The only two ways to sprint faster are increased stride length and increased stride frequency. That's it. There's, so how are you going to increase stride length? Well, the only way to do it is to increase strength to apply more force. Well, how do you do that? So it's, and then stride frequency, there's a whole bunch of other things to do it. That's rate coding. That's, you know, getting everything firing properly. You know, there's a lot of technical aspects to that, but you're, you're hundred percent right. Like if you're not applying force and then that gets into where, and I'm sorry, not just because I'm a track coach, but because I'm from South Jersey, I still can't get over you calling him Carl all the time, just because he's <laughs> Carl Lewis, but I know you're, you're buddies with him now and you work with him, but like he was one of the first ones. Well, no, he wasn't the first Jesse Owens was the first, but probably the best at that drive phase. Mm. And that's why he always finished well. It's because he understood 
how long you have to push before you get tall. Because a human animal, to the best estimation, can only run at top speed for about 30 meters. And that's, you know, there's different variants of that, this and that. So if you're not applying force to get up to a maximum speed for as long as you humanly can, you're losing everything, man. So how do you increase everything through that dry phase? You get stronger, you get more explosive. If you're doing in six strides what somebody else can do in three and a half, you're never going to get there. Then Floyd, for you, it's that is your event, you know, applying force into the ground. It looks like it's arm. It looks like it's jumping straight up in the air and all that stuff. But it's a lot of horizontal force of pushing through and getting everything moving forward. Exactly. Definitely ground based. And even like, you know, you talk about sprinters in the drive phase and all that. But even if you like you watch football, watch a running back. If he like getting the ball on the sweep, but he coming wide and he plant that foot and cuts it up. If you watch those alone, powerful, slow pushes until they get into the clear and that gets them up to full speed. Like a lot of this stuff is, when I say what they teach is a lot of this stuff is, you know, they figured out what naturally occurs in some of the best athletes. You know what I mean? Just watch it. You see, you see it all the time. You know, you see a guy who steals bases. You know what I mean? He's got his head down and he's pushing like hell. Somebody who, you know, actually swiping them, you know, watch a guy in center field. Like nobody's short, choppy, and quick. That's worth a, that's, that's worth a doggone, you know. I, and I'm not going to say his name. He, I still like him. One of my, uh, a coach that worked for me was one of my assistant coaches. We were working with one of our good sprinters. And uh, I let, and I did this, I, I, don't see, I did this with Floyd, with, with Javelin, where you would ask me for some ideas on Javelin workouts because you hadn't had too much experience with it. I would give you ideas. I would walk away. I do the same thing now with my assistant coaches. I might write the workouts, might ask what to do, but then I walk away let them handle it so they can learn. And so the athletes can see them as the ones really developing. But I go over and there's all these cones out there about 10 meters after the blocks. And I go over and I say, what are those cones for? And he goes, well, that's how long I wanted to push. I'm like, it's 10 meters, man. He goes, yeah. I'm like, she just be pushing till down there. And I point to the like letters on the track. It's like, you want her pushing for like 50 meters? I said, no, I want her pushing for about 30. And I told him, I said, it's not like you can, well, you could kind of, but it's not like you can over push. The whole idea is as you push, as you push, your body naturally becomes vertical and your hips naturally come underneath you because you're pushing so much that you're just biomechanically, you get that neutral alignment from, you know, the back of your spine through your pelvis as you're pushing and as you're getting tall. And then once you're tall, you're at top speed and you can't push anymore. So then it's just about turnover, right? So I was trying to explain it to him. And I said, no, you gotta push at least 30 meters. I said, everybody's gonna be different, but that comes down to going back the strength and the force aspect. If somebody can really apply force and they're strong enough and they have the postural stability to do it, they might be able to push a little bit longer. And that for me and, uh, uh, is sometimes been the biggest fight with sprinters 
of you need to push longer. And they think they're going to lose a race if they if they keep pushing. I'm like, no, man, you only push for 10 meters. Like, so you might beat everybody out of the blocks and then you get left behind because while they're getting up to top speed and then decelerating at especially the 60 meter, if you don't push in the 60 meter, you're done. But if you're, if you're decelerating at a quicker rate than everybody else, cause you try to get to top speed 10 meters in, you're done. And I firmly believe that it's over a half second, maybe three quarters of a second difference in the 60 meters between doing that properly and not doing that properly. So I've worked with some athletes that are incredibly good and there's a huge variation when you look at their time, sometimes at the 60, I'm like, if you can't see that difference between your PR when you actually pushed and when you decided to pop your head up because you got scared because the guy next to you was getting out, <laughs> then, then I don't know what to tell you. And I'm sure, you know, Dave, you don't get that luxury and that experience of working with track athletes in that regard, but it's, that's an area no, you, I... can, you can consider yourself lucky that you don't have to deal with some of those egos and sprints practices. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't deal with them in the in the practices on the field. I, I deal with those egos in the weight room. <laughs> <laughs> when they tell you, "Oh, I wasn't taught to clean that way," or, "Oh, no, no, it's not even that. It's it's oh, it's difficult when I do it your way." No, it's, it's not my way. I'm teaching the right way to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> why am Why am I doing cleans? What do cleans have anything to do with running fast? Why Why are we, Why am I in the weight room anyway? I, yeah, my favorite uh, was, aren't cleans a lift for the shoulders? Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I got that one once. And they sent me a YouTube video where a guy literally says it's an excellent lift for shoulder strength. Yeah, I had a girl the other day oh. who was just like, yeah, you know, I just got to get my upper body strength up and, you know, I can finally start to clean these heavy weight. <laughs> it don't work like that, man. <laughs> I mean, it don't, you know, and you don't, you don't I add 20 to, pounds on your bench and all of a sudden the shot goes two meters further. <laughs> oh man. You know, Wait, had, what, what were your, what were your best events? Well, my, my best event was the discus. Um, I threw, I think my PR, my PR was 58, 12 in a disc. Uh, Shot put, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I always had elbow issues. Um, I threw 16 meters in college and I got it out to what 1860, 1868, um, post-collegiately. So I don't know, it just started to go for me. So I, I was I was more of a discus guy. Looking on it hindsight, I probably should have been a shot putter, but uh, you know. My elbow decided that one for me, you know, so. <laughs> hey, you, with, and this is, uh, I love Floyd, he's my friend. This is with no disrespect, with the ugly hammer turns I saw you doing, as far as you put that hammer sometimes, you could have been a pretty good hammer thrower. <laughs> now, now, let me take that back. I, I, I would have been an outstanding hammer thrower if, you know, I dedicated myself to it and actually learned about it. I definitely, if I had myself walk into my program that I coach, you know, my younger self walk into me and my, me now is coaching him, he would have been a hammer thrower. 
he would have been a hammer thrower. You seem to love coaching a hammer. Like when I watch your videos, it's a lot of teaching the wind. It's a lot of teaching landing at 270. Like it's, it's a lot of good stuff. The thing, the thing for me, um, the hammer, I feel like coaching it came easier than the shot in the disc because I never learned much about the hammer as an athlete. So I didn't have to like, distance myself from my own personal feelings about it discus it's probably the hardest event to coach for me um it's become easier because i don't really throw anymore so i can distance myself away from my personal feelings but shot and disc i always struggled with that you know because i had so many things i did and i did them wrong but they worked for me, right. you know, mm. so exactly. And see, that's, that's one of the dangerous things about the throwing events. We lump ourselves into groups based on the level we compete at and based on success at our conference level, what's good at our conferences we compete in or our national meets. And we don't break ourselves down technically. And so many kids, so many coaches limit themselves, limit their kids that way. It's like, well, okay, I'm at Division Two or whatever, and you know, this distance is great for where I compete at, and this distance is great for freshmen. So cool. When a lot of times we just fail to develop the person technically at a and, and continue to put high expectations on them, you know, and we limit them. It's, but it's it's tough. And the other thing that was angering me on, (laughs) on like social media and all is these coaches and it's all levels that look at an athlete posting things and think that they know exactly what that athlete is doing wrong and how to fix it. And Floyd and I have talked about this before. There's coaches, and I'm definitely not going to name anybody. There's coaches across the country that my opinion is based on how they interacted with Floyd when they're talking to his athletes and stuff like that. Like, they could be nice to me, but I'm like, I don't know. That's, that person gave Floyd a little bit of attitude. I don't like that person. But that seems to be a track and field thing. I mean, I guess it's probably in other sports as well, where I was at a meet uh, coaching a couple years ago. One of a kid I was working with, a freshman, never learned the approach of the jumps. And the approach of the jumps is the whole thing. Like, that's what gets you to the board. That's what gets you going for. So your freshman year, especially if you fouled a lot in high school, I'm working on your approach. I'm doing a lot of approach stuff. He ended up PR and big that year, but we're at a meet and he's, his hips are back. There's all sorts of things going off, off the board. And one of the coaches goes to me, coach, you need to tell him that he needs to do blah, blah, blah. And this was another coach on another team whose athlete wouldn't even make the final. And that's kind of like smiled and walk away. I'm like, well, 25 year old Greg would handle that differently. But <laughs> at this point, I'm just, I'll smile and walk away. Like we're, we're in a sport where everybody thinks they can fix everybody else's athlete. And I, I just never understood that, you know, the, the best coaches I know and the coaches that helped me out when I was young, I've mentioned Travis Geffert numbers of times. He's always like been generous with his time. It's, hey, if you ask me, hey, why are you doing this with your athlete? I'll tell you, but I'm not going to go up to your athlete or you and say, you're doing this wrong. So here's the thing. I, 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 after Floyd, Olympic lifting might be the same, Dave, but. 
this is the thing that I tell uh, athletes that get in the coaching, my athletes that get in the coaching. I'm like, everybody, you're going to have a specific way that you go about getting to the end goal. And you never know how people do that. Like, if someone sends me a video and asks me, coach, like, what should I do with this kid? They having this problem. That I will talk their ear off, I give them the advice, but like you never know how somebody goes about developing uh, a thrower and what they do. So the things you see are gonna be extremely different. Like I know a, this is a coach that's a good friend of mine. I know for a fact that the big thing with him is just staying level and balanced until they can consistently do that. They not working on anything else. So you see a lot of things, I'll see a lot of things where I'm like, and if it was me, they wouldn't be doing that. Of course they wouldn't, because the way I develop kids are different. But one thing, all his kids are consistently balanced and level, you know? So, but you don't know that on most people who you see developing an athlete, you don't know what they attack first and how they develop kids. Everybody does it a little bit differently. So, you, I mean, it's just, you see it all the time. And I've been guilty of saying it to myself, like, oh, that was- Say it to yourself is one thing. You know, but I'm, I'll never be that type because you just never know. And, it, and there's times when I find out how somebody goes about, and I'm like, they are much better than I thought because I know how they approach and stuff, you know? So that's the thing you learn, like the more you go on in coaching, the more you realize like you really don't know much, you know? You know less than you actually thought. Well, not only that, you don't know what that kid's practice habits are like. You don't know what their living habits are like. Like they could be missing three practices a week and they're not allowed to get kicked off the team for whatever reason. They could be having horrible sleep. They could be fighting with the coach every single day, just being disrespectful, not listening. So you don't know what everybody's situation is. And that's why it always gets frustrating of you think you're, for whatever reason, there's people that think I'm going to say that one thing that all of a sudden this kid is going to be a national champion. Like, no, like for me and Floyd knows this, where do I spend a lot of time with freshmen and discus exiting out of the back of the circle? We're going to use 360s. We're going to be level on that left foot or right foot if you're left-handed. We're going to be nice and balanced. And that's one thing Floyd works with a lot too, that that exit. Because if the exit is bad, everything else that follows is bad. So I mm-hmm. want that crisp before I move on to anything else. So and somebody that- might look and say, wow, they really fall apart at the front. Well, yeah, we're, we're not focusing on that right now. I want to see that back nice and solid. Are we going to work on the middle? Are we going to work on the front? Yeah. But the primary focus right now is getting that exit just crisp. And I know coaches, I know coaches who, and we bringing up technical points, but that just reminded me when you like, you don't know the habits. I know coaches who 95% of what they work on is just the mental space in preparing and competing in the meets. So you'll see kids who are just wild. And like none of that kids consistently look a certain way, but you're like, man, that kid from that school is always ready to compete when it matters. You know, so it's, it's all type of, you know, 
ways to approach this thing and you just don't know you know how about you dave with like the olympic lifting have you run into a lot a lot of coaches saying well they're they're not doing this on their first pull or postures this or well i i learned uh, coming up as an athlete uh, and and training at east coast gold uh with leo totten and I learned very early on as Leo took me under his wing to be a beginning coach, we were working with a lot of the same athletes or because the team was so large, we would get to a competition, particularly a national championship and have athletes there where their coach wasn't with them, but now I'm working with an athlete for the very first time or Leo's working with an athlete for the very first time that I learned very, very early that he's doing something for a particular reason. And if I've got a question, I'm going to go talk to the coach and ask, I see this. So I'm, I'm always approached it as a, okay, I'm the new guy on the block here. I need to learn something. So I saw this that didn't look right the way the athlete was moving why, why did you coach him that way? And so take that to uh, a more elite level where on a national or excuse me, on an international trip where I, we actually have the personal coach that travels. I'm, I'm the appointed uh, head coach for the team, but the personal coach is doing something that I wouldn't really coach, but I don't work with that athlete at home on a daily basis and and uh, the to, to touch on the point that Floyd just mentioned which is what I was thinking of when you were talking about some coaches uh, doing things in a certain way in a competition environment we have athletes here in Houston that their technical skills in practice are on point they're doing everything they need to. And a hammer thrower throwing uh, 200 feet and then gets into the meet and throws 175. So I asked the coach, okay, wh- what, what happened there? The, the, the mental focus, the, the, the desire to want to compete is something that has to be coached just as well as the technical components. So to answer your question about, uh, you know, absolutely the last thing you want to do and even in that position where i was the head coach of an international u.s team i'm not going to go over to the athlete and tell him to do it a certain way because interfering between that communication uh that happens between that personal coach and the athlete that personal coach has gotten that athlete to that level in the way and methods that work for that athlete and that coach if I have a suggestion, it's going to be off to the side with the coach because the last thing that athlete needs to hear is some sort of, uh, you know, differing opinion from what that athlete's been getting from their coach, right? So I'll go and approach the coach and I'll approach them with a question. Here's what I saw. Um uh, is this something you're working on in a different fashion? And, and the, you know, it's, I, th- I would believe that the coach would receive it. And my experience has been this way, receive that question 
uh, in, a, in a very positive light. Oh yeah, Dave, we're, we're doing this uh, in a backwards fashion so that I can get the athlete to uh, perform the movement that we really want. You know, it's, it's almost like sometimes you have to take a concept completely off the table or even do it backwards sometimes in order for the athlete to do it the way you, you, you want them to make the move. Well, or you take it to the extreme. I've had to go and almost over cue where I'll have them go with the complete opposite end where mm -hmm. instead of telling an athlete, let's say they're pushing out of the back for long jump, instead of doing three lefts for your push, I want you to push all the way to this mark because they push so short then mm -hmm. I know that they're not going to push that far. If I tell them like a wild change, they're going to push to where they're supposed to be because I'm, I'm exaggerating it so far. And sometimes I've, I've done that when I teach the Olympic lifts too, about the second pull, about how much to let it go up, about not getting extended to her and about, you know, doing all these other things. I try to have them be more patient with it because I know from like just doing it at the time, it feels like it's happening within 20 minutes, but it's happening within a fraction of a second. And it's mm -hmm. happened that way with discus as well. Uh, long jump is a big one where your, your final plant, your plant on the board is your longest foot strike of the entire approach. And people think, no, you have to get off quicker. But the research has been showing that a higher impulse of a longer time on the board still results in a longer jump than anything else. So sometimes I'll tell them to really just be patient about no matter what you want to get the hips through, but get the hips through, get all of this. So I give them just a drastic overcue in order to do it. But if another coach heard me say some of these things, they'd think, well, that guy's an idiot. He's, he's telling them to do something <laughs> that's just aggressive and different. No, because in that kid's head, that's what's going to get them to do that thing. I've actually been thinking about the, finish of the first pull i've actually had uh athletes and I'll, I'll tell them okay it's gonna feel like you're sticking your butt up in the air and then when they do that and if they do it to such an exaggeration that actually the bar doesn't move okay you went too far i want you to feel like you're sticking your butt in the air but take the bar with you and then and it you know, that's, I think in, on the weightlifting side, that would be my example of uh, giving them a cue that not exactly orthodox, but gets me, gets the athlete to uh, get closer to the, the intended goal of getting the knees out of the way. Well, on, on squats or even coming up on a recovery from a clean or a snatch, one I still use if an athlete's knees are coming in, I always tell them, push from the outside of your foot on the way up. It's nonsensical. It, it, mm. You can't only push from the outside of your foot standing up. But the problem is they're letting themselves roll in so far that if I say that a lot of times, they focus on keeping everything in alignment. And then generally it, it fixes the problem at least as they're training. And then if there's other postural dysfunctions, it works its way out. But that was always one of my favorite push mm. from the outside of your foot. You're okay. You're at the bottom. Think about pushing from the outside of your foot. That generally keeps your knees in alignment. So yeah, it's keep one that's, keeping them away from that valgus knee, knee movement on coming out of the squat. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. like I said, it's nonsensical. Like it's, it's not something a human body does like, Oh, I'm only going to push on 20% of my foot, <laughs> but it's something that 
for whatever reason, who's, I can't remember which coach taught it this way. It might've been you, um, for people whose arms soften in the snatch, uh, said to try to think like you're ripping the bar in half when it's overhead. But yeah, Leo, Leo will talk about that. Is that pull, Leo? pull the bar apart. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I love that cue. I mean, that's one that, yeah, you're not literally ripping the bar apart, but you're keeping everything stable up top. Like it's, it's just a good cue. And going back to Floyd's point, like, I mean, he's the one I learned the term isms from. Like when we're talking about throwers or jumpers or anybody that does something that's a little bit different, it's because it works for them. You know what I mean? And, you know, Adam Nelson was a big one, that big left leg swing coming back around on his spin for shot. That's not the best way to do it, according to the book, but that's that's a Nelsonism. That's that worked for him. That's how he did it, and he stayed separate. You know, you look at shot back, it kept them uh, separated, and it put them in a position to deliver the hell out the ball. And I I know his strength coach from that he's worked with at Georgia at the time, who told me that Adam Nelson had one of the strongest cores he's ever seen in his life. So he's able to accomplish something like that. So a lot of times, and it happens in track you know, more than any other sport sometimes where they'll see a certain technique and say, oh, that person does this really good. So I have to try to mimic that. Like, no, find your own style. Like Floyd, your your discus is way different than a, if you look at Valerie Allman, what Zeb's teaching her. And Zeb's mm-hmm. a hell, he, me and Zeb went through level one together. He's a hell of a coach. So what he's doing works there. Another discus thrower, it's going to work completely different if you look at a Robert Harding. So mm-hmm. You can't pigeonhole everybody and think this is the way you do it. There's got to be variations. Exactly. I had siblings, female hammer throwers, you know, same parents, and they were so different. It was ridiculous. Mm. The way I approached them, the cues I gave them, the strengths, the weaknesses. I mean, it it was kind of unbelievable because outside of the circle, they were so similar, but they couldn't be any more different. And, you know, they ended up doing good, well for me. But a lot of times we get caught up as coaches, we learn these things and we learn skills we wanna teach. But it's easy to forget sometimes is that all you're trying to do is get to an outcome. So you might say something like you say, that's nonsensical. But does it get the result that you need? Does it get the athlete to understand what's supposed to happen and get them to execute it? Well, if it does, okay. Like you hear a lot, like in the hammer. Oh, it's pushing. Oh, it's not pushing. Oh, it's, you know, all the, and I'm like, who cares what verb you use? Is what needs to happen able to happen? Is the athlete supposed can do it? So. If I say push and it works, fine. You say pull and it works, and you get the outcome you need. You say backflip and it works. Who cares? Are you getting the result that you need? Are they understanding what's happening? Is what is what you seeing? What needs to happen for this to be effective? You know. So. Yeah, especially um, we're getting over an hour. So I don't want to hold you guys too long, but at least one story before I go, you're a Sadiq, uh, before he passed away, actually, you're a Sadiq passed away, world record holder in a hammer. Um, 
I saw him do a clinic at um, the track at Classical High School in Rhode Island. And Rhode mm -hmm. Island's one of the few states that has really high school hammer. Uh, some coaches don't recruit high school hammer throwers from Rhode Island because they call it almost the Rhode Island style. It's it's like a cult almost. It is. It's a, it's a different type of hammer. And a lot of times it takes to, to coach them into using that 16 pound ball takes a little bit of time. So Yuri's there and Yuri's old and grumpy. He don't care. And I'm talking to him and I'm there. <laughs> I'm there recruiting. Like I'm there just watching and talking to the high school coaches and um, I introduced myself like, you know, Mr. Sadiq, you know, uh, I, I was a thrower, but you know, I'm a strength coach too. And I'm an Olympic lift coach. And, and he apologized to me because in his speech, he said, well, everybody thinks you'll need to be very strong to throw hammer. He said, me, I, I am not very strong. My, my, my best squat, Olympic squat, only 260 kilo. And everybody's like, what? He's like, no, he's, he's not strong. He said, I have, I have teammates. They, they squat over 300 kilo. I still throw farther than them. So strength does not matter. And I'm just thinking in my head, like 260 <laughs> is, is for a full squat is pretty doggone good. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he goes to me when I tell him, yeah, I'm an Olympic lifting coach too and a strength coach. He's like, I am sorry. I might hurt your business with things I'm saying about how strength doesn't matter. I was like, no, no, you're, you're, you're fine. But he gave really good analogies that work for him because he said, I hear everybody here saying that you don't pull the ball. And he said, you do. You do pull the ball with your left. He said, a lot of people I hear saying that you only push for your right side. He said, as he put it, is impossible. You cannot move hammer just with right side. And one of the coaches raised their hands like, can you explain that? Because you're kind of going against everything that we teach and like what we've heard. And he said, he said, you still move the hammer with the upper body. He said, lower body is important. So like you're saying, it's different for everybody. For him, he's, his main focus, and I don't know if we talk about this, Floyd, his main focus all is keep the hammer in front of you. Keep that triangle in front of you, see the ball. And he compared the legs to shocks on a car. He said, the legs are like the shock absorber. You land, you extend, you land, you extend. And I said, okay, that's, that's still it. And the push comes from that. It's just, he's not cueing it that way. And then we go and he wanted to see everybody throw. So we go in and a lot of young kids, freshmen, sophomores, and they wanted to throw the weight. He took the weight and threw them away. No, the, in America, you think too much about weight. Hammer is the events. Nobody cares about weight. I said, okay. So they get a medicine ball, like one of the big ones on a rope. They throw plates down it <laughs> to make it weigh the right amount. First thrower goes up, does a one turn. No, one turn is not hammer. You must do a three turn. Kid goes, I've, I've never three turned in my life. He's like, today you three turn. <laughs> so every single thrower, he refused to let him do anything less than three turns. And every cue is exactly the same. Did you see ball? No, no I, I, I think I got ahead of it. You did not see ball you must see ball like and that was it so for him that's that was the primary thing if i'm going to teach somebody they need to keep proper alignment with that hammer until they do that i don't care what else you're doing and like you said that's from the upper body so if it helps somebody to think i'm going to push it in front of me and keep it there or if it is i'm going to lead it with my left to get it there what does it matter i'm keeping it in front of me then after that we work on moving the ball 
sorry, that was a long story, but that was one I <laughs> just Yuri made me laugh when he's like, No, I, my squat was low, it was like 260 kilo. I'm like, What do you mean that's low? Like, <laughs> you're doing 170 pounds more than I ever did. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, interesting man. We had we he came to visit us here probably a couple of months before he passed. He was here really? for a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, I guess it was right right when the pandemic kind of was in, in the thick of it, and we weren't uh, really allowed to have anybody on campus. And he was there working with uh, a couple of post collegiate throwers. And I was I was enjoying my conversation with him about. Uh, all of his uh, weightlifting friends. Yeah. Boy, your your story about 260 kilos is not very heavy. That reminds me of of uh, when uh, Dimas came to the U.S. Uh, before he started working with USA Weightlifting, and it was su such an excitement for all of us to sit around and talk to him. It was actually, I think, uh, the 2016 trials. We were in Utah. And so uh, he sits down in a chair and everybody's asking questions. And one of the questions were, you know, why did he go to the power jerk instead of the split jerk? Because his split jerk was so great in the, at the 93 world championships. And then after that, we started seeing him power jerk. He said, I didn't need to because my, uh, my squats were so big, which, okay, begs the question. Okay, so how much did you squat? So he tells the story this way. Uh, 290. 290 kilos. Mind you, this guy weighs 85 kilos, 290 kilos. And then, and so the whole crowd is like, you know, whatever, 40 of us sitting there. Oh, wow. And then he says, in the front squad. <laughs> and then everyone's like, holy shit. Really? He says, yeah, 335 in the back squad. Did, was so, he, my legs were strong. I didn't need to split. Was he always at 85 or he started out 77? Uh, it was 83. Okay, that's and right. Then, and, then it, and then it changed to 85. So he was in 83 in the 96 Olympics with uh, that battle with Mark Hooster. Yeah. Floyd, have you ever seen video of him, uh, Pierre Demas? I might have shown you back in the day. We used to watch him all the yeah. time in the office. Mr. Mr. Traps, just the just the shrug. Like he oh, would just shrug the heck out of the thing and it would just snap right up there. Do his yeah, cocky little look left, look right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you you talk you talk about uh, people seeing video of how some elite level athlete does something. He had this really weird like head whip in, in his is all of his lifts. And there is no way you would ever want to coach any athlete to do that. But he just made it work for him. Well, because he didn't even power jerk it. He he squat jerked it, basically. Like, he got into just basically a full squat on a lot of his, like, when he would do the jerk. I think that was only because he didn't drive it hard enough and ended up really? squat under it. But most but of I mean, them were power Still jerked. to have the stability there. I mean, when you watch, you know – like the Chinese do a different thing other than an overhead squat. They do basically like a concentric with it already set up. They get underneath and then stand up for a lot of theirs, which I've, I've gotten into mm -hmm. for front squats for my athletes and all. I don't have the stability to do that with 60 kilos. And when you see Zhao Jun just do it with, you know, 160 or whatever, I'm like, 
how do you have the shoulder stability just to sit in that position in the posture? It's, it, it's just absurd, but yeah, Dimas, like it was, it was a head drive and then a big shrug and <laughs> he snatched, he snatched 180 at the 96 Olympics. It was crazy. And then there was the one video that might've been it where he celebrated and he jumped and people have taken the film and watched it. And it was like a 44 inch vert, just as like a jumping <laughs> celebration. It was so Oh absurd. yeah. Well, in that, in that battle in 96, uh, he sets the world, he sets the world record in the clean and jerk at 213. And Hooster comes back and beats him with 213.5, sets a new world record. And after that, Hooster jumps. And you see the bar bouncing off the platform and Hooster's feet are in the air at least 60 inches. It's, yeah, I mean, that's Floyd to go back to you, Duncan. I mean, <laughs> when you're explosive, you're explosive. You can, you can get a vert up there. Yeah. I it mean, just I, me. You're talking about the uh, demons just whipping his head back. I remember in the discus specifically, I would get to the front and I was just... My mindset literally was take off like I'm a dunk. <laughs> and I would never, I have never taught anyone <laughs> to do that nonsense. <laughs> Showing them how to throw a disc. So it's just, I, you know, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I kind of laugh at myself. And it that made it hard for a long time to coach kids. For me personally, in the disc, but there's there's certain videos we would always watch. We would always watch Demas lifting. We would watch Ricky Bruch discus training. Even the I don't know if, don't know if Dave knows who Ricky Bruch was. He was a Swedish discus thrower. What what's the name of his movie? The Soul is Greater Than the World. Is that what it was called? It was an actual movie. It was a documentary. My college coach. We actually. <laughs> We actually watched that on a road trip once, man. That's what well, I, was the, the Olympic lifting coach I was being talked about a lot. Uh, Mike McKenna and I would talk about that. Ricky Bruce <laughs> was just a freak of nature. He used to do reverse grip cleans was one of his main lifts that he was convinced would do him. I mean, there was one scene in the movie. He would take however many pills a day, 180 pills a day. And they weren't steroids. It was amino acids. It was all this stuff. He would inject arginine directly into his bloodstream. He did all of this stuff. He goes to the doctor and he says, they do a muscle biopsy to check out his fast twitch. And they said, <laughs> overall, you're, what was he, 85% fast twitch. It was something. He's seen him out. Like, it's, it's about as high as you can be. He goes, he's, he's like, it's still not good. I need to be 100%. The doctor's <laughs> like, it's, it's impossible. You can't be 100%. The only, and learning from Boo Shexnader, the only group that's 100% is actually newborn babies because they haven't moved yet. And then he goes, well, I'm doing well with my training. I'm taking 80,000 milligrams of this and this. And the doctor goes, why, why are you doing that? He's like, for recovery. He goes, he said, just so you know, Ricky, he said, you're, you're urinating all of that out. He's like, none of that is getting absorbed. He's like, well, I'm and he, I can't remember, he said how much he's spending ordering it from the United States to get to Sweden. <laughs> and they said, yeah, you're, you're wasting your money. Your, your body's absorbing none of that stuff you're taking. <laughs> that's, that that's $1,200 you just spent, you were pissing it right into the toilet. 
but it's <laughs> if you ever get a chance, it's probably still on YouTube. The the training he would do was just insane, and he held the discus national or the world record for only a couple days, and then I think Wolfgang Schmidt beat him. Um, because there's one scene where they're trying to break um, Wolfgang Schmidt out of uh, house arrest. Because Wolfgang Schmidt was a thrower from Germany, and when it was East and West, he was friends with the throwers on the West, and he wanted to train in the United States with uh, Mac Wilkins and everybody. So East Germany put him under house arrest. So they were trying to break him out of house arrest. <laughs> we used to watch uh, Warner Gunther too. Werner Gunther, the um, preparation physique, his just triple jumping as a thrower at what was he six six you know 280 triple jumping upstairs <laughs> and then just doing wow. all this weird training Werner gunther was like and and that i think was i've thing. seen some of those videos well back yeah. then it was a lot of gliders so once you get pretty proficient in the glide it's just i need to get very very strong i need to get very 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 fast the spin has kind of allowed athletes that aren't athletically gifted in terms of leverage, in terms of being much taller and things like that. It's, it's allowed a little bit more variation uh, just through the technique. But yeah, the Ricky Bruce videos were, that would be <laughs> me and Floyd. Uh, so basically, Dave, what happened? Uh, I coached at Iowa Central. I was a full-time assistant coach. Floyd was, you were an RA who lived in the dorms was an assistant. Isn't that what it was? Yeah. Yep. So he had to live in the dorms, put up with the little kids, <laughs> uh, deal with them. And then I would have him and the other assistant, Brooke over, um, who was the distance coach when I had my little apartment out there in Iowa. And I had that nice $500 a month, two bedroom with a garage. And I would have them over. We would barbecue once in a while. <laughs> yeah. That was a good times, man. It was, it was good times. It was, it was interesting. Coaching the dirty Dodge in Fort Dodge, Iowa, but yeah, just pulling up, pulling up the St. Edmund that uh, one day, just painting lines and having just oh. like a, a random discus meet. And they had like that cage that was probably like six feet, six was, feet tall. It wasn't a cage, it was a, it was a baseball backstop that you and I dragged over there, and then it wasn't working, so we threw it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, we just flipped it over behind the. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens oh, Olympic man. lifting too. Hey, you want to do a meet? Yeah, let's let's bring a platform in. Let's let's get a platform in. Let's get a good bar. Uh oh, Morristown, man. New Jersey, uh down where I'm from the one year, uh a new CrossFit gym had just opened up and they brought their kids in to compete. And I was the center judge. So for Olympic lifting, there's three judges. There's the center one who's the one who gives yeah. the down signal as well as give the lights, and then there's the other two. I was a center judge in Morristown High School basketball court. One of the first things you teach for Olympic lifting is how to miss. If you're not going to get it, you, you, you dump it, you drop the bar, you get out, whatever. Young kid, I don't remember if it was a clean jerk or a snatch, gets it up and starts running forward <laughs> off the platform, drops it, hole in the basketball court about this big. <laughs> And we're like, oof. And, uh, and it's like right in front of me. And I just stood there. And Leo was there. He's like, you didn't get up and run. I was like, I, I didn't think he was going to come that close. Like, I was just, I was still watching to see when he was going to put it down. I don't know. 
<laughs> and then I, I talked to the Morristown weightlifting guys afterwards. Like it was Victor and them, and they're like, "Yeah, like the the city's pretty mad at us." <laughs> was was that was that that must have been after uh, Mike McKenna dropping it into the floor? So this is that's the you're describing the second time that it happened. Oh, it happened. McKenna did it too. Yeah, McKenna, McKenna dropped like 170 off that platform right into the basketball court and uh david fleming had just happened to have tools in his truck and we repaired it over the weekend before yeah (laughs) so you're describing the second time oh this is a different time then yeah this was like 2014 oh yeah this is i'm gonna go back to probably 2003 or 4 mike mckenna i don't know clean and jerk 170 and uh went running forward on the jerk and put it right into the floor <laughs> oh wow so Floyd so you know Mike McKenna actually was a hammer thrower at uh, University of Delaware oh okay then he he runs a good uh weightlifting gym up in York PA now but okay yeah like well with, like you're talking about where like the mental aspect um my first I've only done two on what the weightlifting meets like I got into Olympic lifting way late I was I was almost in my 30s I was just coaching it up until then. I did the coaching certifications and then started, hey, let me let me see how I can do. And I remember I was training really well. And I have to power jerk because my split stinks. And uh, Victor, Victor Glago, who the, the coach in South Jersey would yell at me. So in Cuba, from the time you were six, you would be with a broomstick just getting I said, I, I'm not from Cuba. Victor. I, 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 <laughs> I can't do it. So he would say, he's like, he's like, all right, well, just 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 power jerk because you're so much better at power jerk. So I'm like, okay, I'll power jerk. And I got to the point where I was doing it really well. I was over about 130, 135 kilos on clean and jerk with a power jerk. And I was like, all right, that's respectable. And like the snatch was about a hundred. So we get into the meet and I call it circle dumb in track and field where you get in the circle, you forget everything you're supposed to do. You hold back. I got, lifting dumb on the platform all of my snatches were power snatches catching them about this high (laughs) no no timing no getting underneath and then um i got into the clean and jerk and i think i stopped it like only like 115 120 and mckenna was actually the announcer like giving the announcing and all and the last one it was like 120 and i go and it was like a push press (laughs) it was just like this and I obviously got three red lights, no good lift. Mm-hmm. And McKenna goes, well, there's a very subtle, not subtle, long push out. So Greg does not get that lift. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Mike. You have to really kind of rub that in. But it's it that was akin to, like I said, my first discus competition or first shot put in high school where, oh, wow, I have these rules now. I have to be in this circle. I can't step over that line. And now mm-hmm. I'm on a platform and I'm like, all right, like for Olympic lifting, they try to get you right up to the time you're going. Like you have to go take a, a warm up lift before you get out there. And then you have to do right. this. And I'm standing there and Leo is my coach for that one. It was in Malvern. And I'm like, okay, so I got to do all these other different things. And I just remembered like, they're like, why are you power snatching it? I'm like, I'm not trying to. Like, I'm not, I, I get on there with the best intentions of doing a full snatch, and then I'm just like, okay, 85 kilos. Let me just throw it over my head. Like, it's just, it's there's no way to like really describe that feeling. 
Like I, what I've compared it to, I'm a big comedy nerd, a stand-up comic. The only way to get better at it is get up there and bomb just a number mm-hmm. of times with bad jokes. And then all of a sudden you figure it out, you find your rhythm. Like, so me doing it twice, there's no way I'm going to break through <laughs> that doing Olympic lifting. <laughs> but it, it's a good learning experience because it's, it's mental strength. Like, no matter what, you, you pull that bar off the ground, it's heavy. Yeah. And then you have to just tell yourself, trust the technique and get it up. Yeah. And when, I mean, it's kind of the same with all of this stuff, but like with hammer throwing, just because typically, I mean, even with my youth kids, they'll come to me with shot and disc experience, but it's that hammer. And I'm always like, do you just have to have enough bad, enough times, and then eventually you'll get it. But you just got to have a, screw it mindset like i'm gonna be bad i'm gonna be terrible but i'm going to start and i'm not gonna stop you know and usually over time over reps it, it just gets better and better but you know all right we, we've been going for an almost an hour and a half now i took up a lot of your guys time but tell you what this is the most fun one we've done floyd i think like oh yeah this is the one where i actually spoke you know, <laughs> like in the corner, not my head. <laughs> so. is, is that because is that because Greg did all the talking? Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of them things. It like, depends. I, it after like it gets to be wanted? about when we're at a convention and after it's midnight and he turns into philosophical Floyd, then, then he's the one who does all the talking. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I have a few soda pops. You know. <laughs> The conversation gets to flow. <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. All right, guys. Um, it was a lot of fun. Tell you what, push this out on your social media too, because some of the stuff we went over, this is one of the better conversations I think a lot of people would hear about lifting and some of the stuff we did. So, you know, this, this was a lot of fun. And anytime you guys want to do this thing again, either one of you, just, just let me know. I'll set up my camera. You can see I got my nice little condo now with my weird Philadelphia <laughs> skyline picture in the back. So, yeah, well, uh, send, send me the link, send out the link, and I'll, I'll I'll put it up there on all the all the various medias. Is MySpace still a thing? Friendster, Zanger. <laughs> you going back? <laughs> put put it up on LimeWire and Kazaa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, LimeWire. Wow. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right. This man, was awesome. Was uh, as soon as this gets processed, we'll put it on up. You guys are the best. I appreciate it. All right. Nice to meet you, Floyd. Talk to you later. Likewise. Greg. All right. Talk to All you. Right. Bye. Take it easy.